This is Island, a podcast presented by FHL Bank Atlanta. Welcome to our next episode of FHL Bank Atlanta iLink. Today I have with me two guests who are going to share some insight into preparing and protecting your organization as rates continue to change. Our first guest is Scott Hildenbrand. He is Managing Director and the Head of Balance Sheet Analysis and Strategy in the Financial Services Group at Piper Sandler Company. Scott is here to talk to us about quality versus quantity in terms of earnings and the tactics that could better prepare or further expose your organization in light of the upcoming rate changes. Our second guest today here is Scott Brennan. He's Senior Vice President and Director of Sales at FHL Bank Atlanta. In his role as Director of Sales, he hears the questions our members are asking, so he's going to be bringing those questions to the table today. Scott, Scott, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, Hi, Scott. We really appreciate you joining us today. Um, You have an opportunity to work with a lot of our shareholders at the Atlanta Bank, Um, and as well as institutions across the country. So we always appreciate your insight. Um, So let's let's just go ahead and get right into it. Uh, Financial institutions across the country have experienced record deposit growth since the start of the pandemic to the tune of trillions of dollars each quarter. So between multiple stimulus packages and Fed intervention through quantitative easing, cash and the availability of cash hasn't been a problem really at all for the folks that we cover and I'm sure you cover. Um, But what to do with that liquidity near term is a challenge. What are you seeing your clients do to squeeze out any income they can or what aren't they doing that you wish they would? Yeah, no, first of all, Scott, I I appreciate you having me today. You know, look, I I, I think the first thing I want to think about is the first question we get all the time is what am I supposed to do with all this cash? And I think it's important to remember, too, Scott, that a year and a half ago, we were fighting each other, literally, uh, to bring in the next deposit. And it's just interesting how the world changes on a dime. We went from how do I get money in here uh, and I'll be willing to pay what I need to pay to how the heck do I get it out of here and earn more than nine basis points the Fed paying me, right? And, and, the, and the real question comes down to not only the money I have today, but how long is it here? And so, Scott, the first thing I I recommend to everybody, and certainly your members and and really throughout the country is, and I don't always get a great answer on this, is how do you at your institution measure and monitor your strategic liquidity ratio? And I've said this a lot, you know, and I've said this to examiners and I've said this to others. If I pulled 16 CEOs into a room and I said to them, said to he or she, how do you at your institution strategically manage your liquidity ratio? I bet you I get 37 different answers, right? And, and there's too many ways sometimes to measure liquidity. So I think I start with understanding and determining the most important one or two strategic liquidity measures for me. And then from there, Scott, we start to design a game plan around some of this is going to be short. Some of this maybe we can push out a little bit and think about it as a little bit longer term. And and the way that I love to do that is almost a matrix between my loan-to-deposit ratio and my cash and unencumbered securities as a percentage of assets. Those two will dictate a lot of of, of what we're going to be doing. And then from there, it's really all around the blocking and tackling, the traditional assets that we would normally buy. Unfortunately, not only with all-time lows and interest rates comes uh, uh, tightening and spreads, so with the government buying pretty much every asset that's not nailed down, 
Um, you said it more politically correct than I do. They're buying literally every asset that's not nailed down. So, so the spreads have tightened dramatically on assets that we would typically buy. So we've got to be thoughtful and smart there. But I think even one step further, too, is you got to take a hard look at your existing balance sheet. Um, maybe there are ways to make your own existing balance sheet more efficient before you start thinking about putting some of that cash to work. And there are options that are traditional. There's some non-traditional options that I could get into as well. Um, but there's definitely a, a problem. And I think the first problem is understanding liquidity position better. I think sometimes we just kind of we, we just kind of look at the next three months and move on. And I, I think we've got to take a hard look at our own strategic way we measure liquidity. And then from there, start putting a game plan in place, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And can, can we dig into that a little bit? And when I you know, when I hear you say that, sure. <clears throat> I'm also hearing um, the amount of deposits that have come into our, our come into our members balance sheets. Um, they are with existing relationships and they're also with hot money where there may be no relationship at all. Your clients, how do they manage that? How do they segment those depositors differently? How do they make decisions based on deposits that they'd like to keep a year from now versus those that they know won't be around a year from now? Yeah, I, I think that the best run institutions take a realistic view that they, they will not be able to capture that perfectly, right? It, 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 it's sort of like trying to predict interest rates. There's no way to really tell who truly will, how much will stay and who won't. But I think there's a couple of things that a lot of people run that I like. One is, have you seen your growth come from uh, existing accounts with balances that have increased? Or have you seen your growth with new customers into the institution that have literally opened checking accounts? That's a big difference. But to you and I, all we see is deposit growth, right? So you can bifurcate that a little bit and start thinking about the differences of who's coming in and who's really just keeping a little extra cash at the, at, at the institution for a little while, and then we'll move it out versus, hey, you know what? You did a fantastic job on Triple P with for me and my, little, and my company. I'm going to open a checking account with you, and you're my new institution. So there's a big difference there, and I think we start with that. But I think you go in eyes wide open. And this is why I go back to sort of my that cash and unencumbered as a percentage of assets, unencumbered securities, because you're never going to be spot on. But it is way too expensive, Scott, to sit and leave money earning nine basis points. The widest spread in this country, and there's not many wide spreads today, the widest spread in this country is the difference between what you earn from the Fed and what you can earn in the bond world, believe it or not. So I'd rather us be fully vested understanding that some of this will go away. But as I've always learned and, and believed, liquidity is not having cash on hand. It's the ability to raise cash quick, very quickly. And you know, I'm the first to ding you when I want to, but but I've got to give you a big compliment. You all have been there for institutions for for, for through thick and thin, bumps and, and, and peaks and valleys. So why not utilize you all from that perspective? I'd rather be driving earnings today, building capital ratios by, by, by continuing to build a bridge till we get out of this, knowing what my game plan is if I start to see the pendulum swing a little bit and some of that hot money or some of those excess balances that we really knew were a little higher than they typically had start to leave. I've got a game plan in place. I'm all about that approach that may be really predicting how long some of this funds will, will be with us. Hopefully that, that, that makes some sense as well. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, all right. So now 
you're a banker, you've got a tremendous amount of cash, um, and by doing nothing uh, and just parking it at the Fed and, and earning nine basis points, that's a decision. Whether or not you, you've, you've, you've consciously made a decision, by not making a decision, you're essentially taking a stand. Um, on the other hand, there are investments available for our membership that may not have the yield that they were used to a year ago or even beginning of this year. What are you seeing your clients take advantage of who are investing that cash and not just parking it and earning nine basis points at the Fed? Yep. No, and I think you bring up two good points I want to hit on. One, uh, I love when an institution tells me, you know, Scott, we are the most conservative institution on the planet. We're leaving all our money in cash. And I'm like, well, that's actually probably the riskiest, right? That means you're betting that rates are going to go fast and go hard up, right? And, and so you're almost putting all your money on red at, at, at the roulette table. So let's, let's take a step back and think about the fact that we are not money managers. We're spread managers, right? There's a big, big difference in that. You're not giving me money and saying, go beat an index. Right. You're leaving the money with with you at the institution because of safety, because of service and all of those other factors. And you're supposed to take that and earn the spread above and beyond. So I, I certainly get into the camp of, OK, now let's move over to. All right. Acknowledging we're going to put some cash to work. And I hate every single yield in a in a silo. Right. I do not like the yields today. But when I when I compare it. Right. Everything's relative. Um, you know, and, and, and I sort of think about it from that perspective. Um, I, you might be the best basketball player on a JV team, but you go to varsity and it's a different, a different view. Same kind of concept here. We're in a different world right now. Ten-year treasury hasn't even sniffed 1%. So let's be thoughtful and understand that everything is relative. And so let's not look at nominal yields in and of itself. Let's look at how it fits my balance sheet. And some of these assets I'm buying today, I actually, a lot of times, can't wait for them to be underwater. And don't don't end the don't end the podcast right now. Bear with me. But when you buy assets today that are fixed rate, right? You're buying them as a hedge against rate staying low for longer, which unfortunately could happen as well. <clears throat> so I think a lot of it is a lot of our banks are buying mostly the same traditional assets. Um, sometimes we're looking a little deeper on prepays and things like that. We have to understand the impact on the optionality risk we have across the board. A lot of us are actually looking to go and lo add some lockout and some protection against what's what's happened is is obviously prepays and refinancings picking up. And I'll tell you one other one that's been really interesting, Scott. You know, and, and I almost view this as replacing credit risk, not adding credit risk. And if you've ever heard me speak, I'm not a huge fan of adding credit risk to the bond portfolio, right? We've always lived in the world if I take my credit risk in the loan book. I manage interest rate and liquidity risk in my bond portfolio, and that will always be the underlying theme. However, there's been an opportunity for a lot of institutions to look at their loan-to-deposit ratio, notice the dip, look at your loan pipelines and say, wow, those are not as strong as they were a year or two years ago. Um, what are we supposed to do to build this bridge? I've got all this cash, as we just talked about. And at the appropriate time, it may make some sense to add some sub-debt into your loan portfolio. Right. A lot of a lot of uh, banks are issuing sub debt in the market at four, five, six percent. And what I've always viewed that as is while it will live as a security, you've got an underwriting team ready and able to go. You as an institution make money by taking credit risk. 
if credit is down in terms of volume on the loan side, maybe we replace a little bit of it with buying some sub debt, underwriting it like a loan, treating it like an unsecured loan to another institution. And also the examiners and regulators have done a really great job of identifying and specifically telling you how much you can even own. And it's been examined on bank balance sheets since 2014. So again, I'm not here to tell you that everyone's doing it. I'm here to tell you that I would at least understand what it would look like on your balance sheet. And if you treat it like a loan, right, you surveillance, pre-purchase analysis, and constantly monitor it, and you have a lending and an underwriting team ready to go and able and just not there to help, bring them over and have them help you underwrite it like it's just an asset. And so that's probably the one sort of out of box, sort of, sort of speak, uh, asset that people are acquiring here um, because it does give you a little bit like a loan yield and you can underwrite it. And there's a lot of information on a lot of these uh, institutions. So, uh, so um, I appreciate you bringing up sub debt. Can we dig into that just a little bit? Um, you know, that market was tonning it prior to the pandemic, um, you know, as robust as we'd seen it. And then it came to a screeching halt. But but now it's returned, not not to the levels. I don't believe to the levels it was pre pre pandemic. But it's but but that market's very active. So sort of two sides to the question for the issuers: What are the purposes you're seeing yeah. sub debt issued for? And then on the other side, as an investor in another bank's sub debt, what am I looking for in that bank that's gonna that will entice me to invest in that sub debt? Great question, and uh, you know, I you know, I, I relish in the moments I get to correct you. The market's actually better now <laughs> post post pandemic than it is. So I had to get that in, but 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 you're right. It was on fire before huge rain delay, sort of March, April, middle of May, and then and it makes sense if you take a step back. Then all of a sudden, there's so much liquidity back into the industry, right? So much. There are money managers, insurance companies, and banks sitting on an enormous amount of cash. So sort of heading out of post-pandemic, if you're or in, you know, post the, the initial uh, shock of the pandemic, I should say, um, you know, a lot of institutions have looked at it from the issuing side and said, look, and especially in kind of that March, April, first, second quarter, it was really hard to translate number of deferrals, right, as a percentage of your loan book to your non-performers. You could drive a truck through that. And, and I think investors were sort of like, huh, how do I translate that? And one of the ways I think institutions were handling it is saying, look, I can go out in the market today. Interest rates are so darn low. People want to give me money from a capital perspective, right? And at the holding company, when we raise debt, it farms down to the bank as regulatory capital. So it really feels like a good move for a lot of banks to issue because I can bolster my regulatory capital position, pre-tax at 4 5 6%. Tax rates may go up. Uh, in 21, and we're not getting political, but there, right there, there's a there's a there's a feeling that that may happen. So all of a sudden now, I've raised debt at all time lows in interest rates. People wanting and willing to give me money, and 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 so that's been the offensive approach to capital, along with the defensive approach of maybe it's a good time to get some regulatory capital in here. As I'm personally at the bank, still trying to translate deferrals versus non-performers. And deferrals thankfully have gone the right way and. I think about 50% of institutions, publicly traded banks have, have reported so far third quarter, and it's looking really good. But again, you don't know that. So people have been constantly going out and, and raising the money on the issue side. On the buy side, 
right? Now now you have to think about it in, in, in a couple of ways. One way, Scott, that's been interesting is a bank will tell me, I have always loved X, Y, and Z bank. I know the management team. I know their business model. I love their game plan. Why wouldn't I give them an unsecured loan uh, um, at 5.5%? At, at so there's one of those that I know them very well. I would have lent them the money myself. Why not own a small piece of this security as, as in the form of sub debt? The other angle is, wow, why wouldn't I maybe want to think about diversifying my, look, my loan book is, is typically in the markets I've got branches or typically in the markets that I'm lending in. That doesn't tr- traditionally cover the entire country. And maybe there's a pocket or a different part of the country. I know a lot of people love to be where you all are, right? They love the South, the Southeast, but maybe, maybe you're in the Northeast and you'd love to have some exposure to the Southeast. And wouldn't this be a great way to dabble into it? Small pieces, um, managing it really thoughtfully. Um, and, and again, to my point, underwriting it like a loan and staying well within the guidelines that the examiners have laid out for us have gotten a lot of institutions comfortable. In fact, I wrote a white paper on it. So if anybody has trouble sleeping at night, uh, reach out to me or reach out to Scott. He'll get it the request to me and I'll get it out to you. I appreciate that. Um, so you mentioned um, good management teams uh, tend to attract investors of sub debt. Uh, to the extent you can, what are the characteristics of a good management team? So what do you see um, when an investor says that, you know, I'm interested in a good management team, what does that look like? Yeah, no, and, and, it, and it can be different things to, to different investors. But, you know, the thing that I think about, um, and, and I almost label banks into two into two categories, because we're talking about publicly traded banks here, or I can even talk about private and, and, and get into other institutions. But in my head, when I talk to investors in, in bank stocks, I sort of label some banks as really good at tactics, and I label some banks that's really good at strategy. And you're probably, I wish I could see your face, you're probably really confused, but give me 30 seconds. When I think about tactics, right, I think about tactics are, are, are knowing what to do when it's right in front of you, right? Interest rates drop like a stone. Uh, massive amount of liquidity has come into my institution. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lower my deposit rates, right? That That isn't a strategy. That's right in front of me and I can pound it home. And, and that's good. And it's important to be good at, at tactics. The The best management teams not only are good at tactics, but they're fantastic at strategy. And strategy, in my humble opinion, is knowing what to do when it's not clear and obvious. And I'll give you a quick example of, of, of one that is in my world, but you can think about it from a management perspective, being open and honest with their own institution. Back two and a half, two summers ago, I guess summer of 18, we were still projecting uh, the Fed was still having a couple of Fed hikes, right? Interest rates were rising. The market was good. Unemployment was low. Loan demand was on fire. Deposit gathering was really difficult. And I went on to this po- the podcast webinar, and I had about 700 of my of my closest clients on, and I was talking through this and saying, look, we really need to think about putting downside risk in place. In fact, Scott, I think I did a roundtable for you back in that kind of that September of 18, talking about down rate protection. And I don't know if you were nervous, people walking out of that roundtable, but I think people were kind of looking at me like, Scott, everybody's predicting rates higher. Why on earth would I think about putting, you know, down rate protection in place? And what it really, what I really learned a lot about that is the smartest institutions know not only the strengths of their institution, but their weaknesses, where they're exposed. And they raise their hand. They're not insecure about it. And so a lot 
rates, a slowdown in the economy. So maybe I'm supposed to think about it from that perspective. Imagine going to a board and saying, hey, I know rates are going higher. I'm going to put on floors or I'm going to put in duration here. And I think those institutions, in my humble opinion, have the best management teams because they don't look at things from rate predicting economics. They look at things at their own level, at their own institution, what's strong and what's weak. And I'll give you one one further example, and I'll make fun of myself here. I was starting to gain weight even before uh, the, the the COVID, right? And everybody sort of says you get the COVID, you gain the 19 pounds on, under COVID. I was already starting to do that. I was getting lazy about going to the gym. And it took me through the through the, the pandemic to say, wait a minute, I better get back in track. And I fixed it up and I, I got myself into, into better shape. I, I sort of think the same thing. The institutions that blame everything on the pandemic are sort of looking at it as a tactic. I think the ones who are saying, you know what? Maybe our technology wasn't up to par here. And yes, the pandemic fast forwarded that a little bit, but we're going to acknowledge that and invest in that. And I'm, I'm giving you an example, but there's others as well. I think it's the ones that truly aren't insecure and raise their hands and say, I've got a couple of issues. I'm always going to have some issues, but we're going to work hard to address them. And I think those are the best management teams, in my humble opinion, for whatever that's worth. No, I, I agree. I think that's great. Thank you, Scott. Um, so uh, just switching gears a little bit, there is not necessarily a need for liquidity among our membership right now, but what we are seeing some of is um, some of our members opportunistically funding sort of in the belly of the curve, seeing where rates are right now and taking advantage uh -huh. and, and while they don't need it. So similar to the point you made, um, borrowing, knowing that they're accessing well below market rates and preparing themselves from a time that, that um, when, when times change. We're also seeing some forward starting advances. So some of our members are locking in advances that fund, you know, typically in the 12 to 24 month range. And from there with a maturity of three to seven years, what are you guys seeing on the swap side? I know that you all have similar conversations with your clients. Are you seeing anything similar? Yeah, no, definitely seen a few things, Scott. And, and, and uh, you got your spot on to, to some of the things we're hearing. A lot of forward-starting swaps or forward-starting advances is one, of the, is one of the ways that I think people are taking advantage of where the market is today without having to actually add the money today, right? Like, it'd be weird to go to your board and say, hey, we just took down another $100 billion and I know I'm sitting with $2 billion of cash over here, but now we got two point one. Aren't we all happy? But at the same time, opportunistically thinking about your own balance sheet and parts of the yield curve that matter most to you, right? Like that's something, Scott, that I don't think enough institutions can answer. And I wonder if, if you agree with me on this. I often go to Alco meetings and I'll say, what part or parts of the yield curve matter most to you? And where are you exposed? And then we can start doing things like you just mentioned. You know what? We're kind of exposed to the seven-year part of the curve, right? Ticking up 25, 50 basis points. How would you address it? It might be forward starting in advance. Or, or entering into a forward starting swap starting two years from now that'll last five, six years, right? So so there's a lot of understanding the parts of the curve that matter most and then started to go into uh, utilizing interest rate swaps. The other area that, that people are utilizing interest rate swaps, believe it or not, and I apologize for getting off the wholesale funding for a minute, and I'll come back to it. The other side has been, you know, what people are asking a lot about is, look, my bond portfolio is going to be as large as it's ever been with all this cash. One of the things that my board members get upset about 
is my TCE or my tangible common equity or tangible book value per share being impacted by up interest rates, right? Because we're marking that available for sale. Whether you're doing wholesale funding with swaps and you get the cash flow hedge accounting and that mark to market will offset OCI or people are buying longer dated municipals and swapping them back to a floating rate as a great way to add some, some, some assets and not necessarily have to take all the duration risk we used to have to take because of the accounting rule changes and it simplified that. So I'd say I'd absolutely agree with you. Forward starting swaps are, are and, and forward starting advances are, are a great tool once you understand the impact of your balance sheet and where you're exposed. And similar, I'd tell you that the asset hedging has become very popular as well, um, as we've seen more and more institutions say, you know what? I actually get compensated for the longer dated municipals. There's actually a a spread there I can see. So I like the credit. I don't love the duration. Why don't I swap a a piece of that to a floating rate to manage my interest rate risk position? Because as we've always said, the best run institutions in the country make sure changes in rates will never dramatically shift their earnings stream, right? So we're just constantly going liability asset, which side and and, and what's the most effective way to manage it. Sure. And, and to, you know, back to your point about those institutions that you work with and Alco that understand where they have holes, um, it, that tends to be a distinction between those who sort of trust their models implicitly um, versus those that don't. And I'm not, that's not an indictment on either side. You know, there always is going to be intervention when, when, you're, yeah. when you're reading model output, but, but we see that quite a bit as well. So we are, um, we're at time, Scott. I, I think the two of us could probably talk for hours and um, soon nobody would listen um, besides the two of us. So but by, let's avoid doing that. But before we do get off the phone, I, I want to thank you a lot for your time. You've been gracious to the Homeland Bank of Atlanta um, on multiple occasions. And I, I always get value out of these conversations. And, and I really hope and, and expect that our shareholders will as well. Um, but before we do get off, is there anything going on at Piper Sandler that you'd like to spend any time talking about? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all. And I have the utmost respect for the Homeland Bank of Atlanta. You all are wonderful. And uh um, truly serve your membership tremendously and the shareholders love you and, and you guys do a fantastic job. And I'm allowed to say that because I get to work with with everybody across the country, but you guys are fantastic. Um, look, you know, Piper Sandler, real quick, it's been interesting, right? I was at Sandler O'Neill for 16 years, a private company, you know, uh, partner in a small, small company, very simple. Well, we decided to sell our company to a publicly traded company during a worldwide pandemic. So that was really interesting. Um, now all of a sudden we're publicly traded and there's, and there's some, there's some differences, but ultimately, um, it has been fantastic. I've loved the challenges and the opportunities it's brought and it just brings a wider base and, and we get to help out people in, in, in many different ways between uni underwriting and our debt capital markets, our investment banking, and a little bit on our balance sheet strategy team that I'm responsible for. So it's been a lot of fun, definitely challenging, but, uh, you know, as, as, as we say, uh, with every challenge brings an opportunity, and we're certainly trying to take advantage of those opportunities that are out there. So, again, thanks again, Scott. I appreciate all the questions and having me on, and uh, I wish nothing but the best for you and everybody at the Homeland Bank Atlanta. Likewise, Scott. Stay safe. Uh, good luck keeping that COVID-19 off. Thank you. I'm trying. <laughs> take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, be sure to follow FHL Bank Atlanta on Twitter and LinkedIn for more information on how we help our members succeed. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice to make sure you never miss an episode of Island.